Hi, this is Zoe Routh, the host of the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. If you're listening for the first time, well, hello to you. <laughs> you might notice my accent is slightly funky or not. I'm a Canadian living in Australia and have been down under for 20 something years. <laughs> a good long time. I love working with CEOs and their teams on the people stuff in leadership. I have a really huge passion for that. I run uh, facilitation programs, coaching and training to help people get on top of the people management issues so they can develop a great culture to deliver on a really strong strategy. What we do in these podcasts is interview high-level leaders who've had success in running their businesses and running their teams and mining them for information about how to do that well. In today's podcast, we have a bit of a pioneer. She is a remarkable leader. Her name is Faith Reese. She is the CEO and founder of Six Pivot and Cloud Control, two different companies. <laughs> she has a background in psychology and communication. How she ended up in IT is what we explore a little bit in the podcast today. She's worked with a huge number of high-level software companies, including Microsoft, but I guess her real journey is about the journey in entrepreneurship when she threw away all that consulting work and training work and started her own show, which is the two companies which I mentioned. She's really passionate about a couple of things, about putting people at the center of business and building businesses around the preferences of people. And we'll hear a little bit more about that in the podcast today, too. And she's also really passionate about mentoring and mental health. And she's won numerous of awards in different sectors for her work around this. So please welcome to the podcast, the remarkable Faith Reese. And if you have another amazing leader who you think is awesome and love to hear more about, please recommend them to me. You can do that on the podcast Facebook page, which the link is in the show notes. Just hop on there and say, hey, maybe you should interview such and such, or I'd like you to interview my boss or my colleague or someone I, I respect. It would be great to hear their story. We really value those recommendations. So if you got one, please send it on through. Okay, enough. Let's get started. All right, all the way from the fabulous Gold Coast, we have CEO Faith Reese. Welcome to the show, Faith. Thanks, Zoe. So great to be here. I'm really excited to hear your story. So you're a young go-getter. You're a female go-getter in a very male-oriented industry, the high-tech space. <laughs> so a bit of a rare bird. I'm curious, how did you get started in the industry? Uh, it was a bit of a journey. So I actually started off doing uh, psychology. I was very interested in, I guess, human beings and how we operate and, and how we think. And, and that's never really changed, which in time has lent itself actually very well to what I do today, even though I may not have thought so at the time. And long story short, I landed a role in a training company and that was kind of my foray, oddly, into tech. So we were training people back then in, uh, you know, Microsoft Word and teaching people, I guess, at the very start of all sorts of jobs needing to learn to use a computer. So, for example, we um, taught bus drivers in the very early days and we'd get them to play solitaire just to teach them how to click on a mouse, basically. <laughs> Um, wow. So, yeah, so that was sort of my foray into tech. And then 
as that progressed, I took on roles where I was doing more, I guess, kind of alliance management and started working with tech vendors like Microsoft and at the time Lotus and Cisco and those sorts of big American vendors. And then from there, my sort of career progressed more and more into the tech side. So originally it started kind of in that sales training side of things, moved more into sales and alliance management, and then really starting to get more into software development, which has probably been about the last 10 years. So I'm not a developer myself, but I work very closely and all my team are developers. Oh, well, that's such a fascinating evolution. So training the actual technical skills of how to use a computer into being a liaison with the big wigs and then getting into software development and managing those things. What made you want to start a company? Was it like from that <laughs> training wing, then like, I'm going to start my own software development company? Like, was that the, was that the big step? Um, look, partly I came from a family where my father did all sorts of job roles and took on all sorts of businesses from doing real estate photography where he started his own business doing that through to having a removal business and all sorts of things. So I guess it was kind of in my blood a little bit that I would have my own business at some point. My grandmother owned her own fish and chip shop. So I think it sort of bred into me that um, that I would do something. And then over the years, across the various organisations that I worked for, a lot of my roles were actually starting new regions or new territories. And one of the roles that I had was actually bringing at the time, fairly new hardware-oriented technology, things like the Google Box at the time or Juniper hardware before it sort of really took off in Australia into the Australian market. And so when I started reflecting on my journey and where I was at, at um, sort of five years ago before I started the business, I'd got to the point in the company I was at that I didn't want to work there anymore. So what was next? And when I looked around, I kind of went, there's no one that I really want to go and work for. And then reflecting on my journey was, well, actually, I've been building other people's businesses literally from the ground up my entire work journey. So I should just do it myself <laughs> was really, yeah. So it was always kind of in my blood, I think, that I would, would do something um, myself. And then it was just timing. You know, I had the contacts, I had the experience. So I didn't go too, I didn't venture too far out of what I already knew. So from that perspective, it was, I won't say easy, but easier than if I just, you know, decided to do something completely different. So, so there you are, you're like, right, well, I'm going to stop building businesses for others and do it for myself. I'm going to get a band of colleagues together, I'm guessing. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and what was the first challenge that you came up against? Uh, look, you know, the first challenge, I think, in any business and particularly in software development is software developers get paid a lot of money. And so finding really good ones that I could hand on my heart, say, I can afford to pay you for the next 12 months as a startup was a big thing for me. And I didn't want to get contractors. I'm, I'm very, for lots of reasons, I'm very opposed to having contractors in the business. So I wanted it to be a team that would grow and have the same values, the same interests in the sorts of technology and the type of technology that I wanted to build. So the biggest challenge at the start was really having that funding to get the people that I'd worked with in the past that are these amazing technologists. From that perspective, I ended up taking funding 
to start with. So I got an investor who, again, was somebody that I had worked with in the past. And he said, well, if you're going to do something, you know, I believe that you'll be successful. So, you know, where do I sign? Um, so that was a relatively nice. easy investment process. That then meant that I could go out and start to employ people full time without having to worry, you know, was I going to be able to pay their paycheck? next month. So I kind of made sure that I had a 12 month investment that I could afford to bring those people on without um, yeah, having to, I guess, fly by the seat of my pants as, as most startups do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that really helps knowing that you can at least get some bodies on the ground to do the actual work. And how big are you now and how long have you been in business? Uh, so literally July, June, July is five years for um, for the company. I actually have two businesses. One is a, a consulting application development company called Six Pivot, and the other one is actually a global cloud management software product called Cloud Control. Started them both at this pretty much at the same time, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> um, and we're about twenty four staff at the moment across right. the two of them. Uh, yeah, so the software product is quite small still at the moment, team-wise. So most of the team are in the consulting business. But, we're, yeah, we're sort of starting to grow both of them. This year, I brought on a general manager to take on the day-to-day -day of the consulting business so I can really start to now focus more on the um, cloud control product. That's it. Why did you decide to start two companies at once? Like, <laughs> what, what, was, where were, what was going on in your brain for that? Uh, look, I think I encourage everyone to take opportunity. When you see an opportunity and you believe that you can build on that opportunity without too much risk, I'm actually quite risk adverse, which surprises a lot of people. So I'll only take on calculated risks, I guess. So with Cloud Control, it was a product that I had started building with at the time I had a business partner as well that we had started building it up at the previous company that we worked for when we left they did nothing with it and so we approached them and said are you actually going to take this to market are you going to continue to develop it they said no so we then bought the IP from them and continued to develop it and then launch it to market um, and I guess because we'd invested already so much in it and we knew it very well and we felt there was the market potential. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds savvy, <laughs> if, if, if not a little crazy. So this podcast is about people stuff and leadership. And I'm curious, first of all, how you define leadership. I'm probably one of the most... Um, transparent <laughs> people and leaders you'll find and it's often a common feedback that I get from people that start with the company just how transparent I am as a leader but also that we are across the business and the people that work for me I've worked with most of them in previous lives and again they've followed me into this startup journey putting all their trust and faith in me partly because of how transparent I am and even through our COVID experience you know we've been completely kimono open with the team around where we're at financially you know how much runway we have you know if the worst case happens what would that be so for me leadership starts with being exceptionally transparent and it's also around trust. And I think you need to particularly 
with my company, we all work remote. So for us, COVID wasn't a massive shift in how we worked. And we spent a lot of time educating clients on being outcome focused rather than measuring the hours that we're there as consultants, which is quite a challenge or was quite a challenge. So one thing COVID has done for us is remove some of that barrier that we've had trying to bring on clients. But that's also part of our leadership is, so my belief is that people should be able to work where they work best. So if that's from home, if that's from a coffee shop, if that's from the beach, if that's from the client, wherever it is that they're going to be their most productive and get the best outcome is where they should have the flexibility to work from. So those sorts of philosophies is really what I founded the business on is I didn't want to go into an office every day. I'd had a job where I was working predominantly from home, but the staff were being made to go on site. And so when I started my business, I thought, there's no way I'm going back to an office. So why should I make my staff go into an office? So it is around that flexibility. And then from that, you have to have that inherent trust in every person that you bring on and you just have to trust that they're going to do their job and that they're going to do it well and that's why you've employed them in the first place. And I find my team, you know, reward me a hundredfold with that trust back as well. So for me, leadership is really all about transparency and trust first and then the rest will come. It's a really big topic, actually, this whole trust, you know, how do I trust my teams to get on with doing what they're doing? And I'm guessing there's seeds of that in your conversations with clients about it's not about the hours, it's about the outcomes. Do you have an approach to accountability with your staff that is unique to remote working or not? Look, I always say software developers, I think, are the easiest people to tell if they're doing their job. So people always say, well, how do you know your team are producing outcomes. So one is that the right tooling. So my three things for remote working are transparency, trust and tooling. So if you give people the right tools that they can do their job remotely, but also that you have the right tools from management perspective to know that they are able to do and manage their job. So with developers, they're constantly checking in code and you're not, you know, looking over their shoulder every minute, but you can see whether they're producing and we we use velocity charts and things like that with our clients as well and we educate our clients on that process so they can quickly see whether our team are producing and whether they're not. What's a velocity chart? (laughs) Is that like a tech-specific thing? Yeah, so in um, we use Agile software development and in that part of that process is that we use something called user stories and as they, which are like requirements, and as the team build out those user stories in code, we chart what we call the velocity of the team. And so over, we do one to two week sprints, which is where they'll have defined work that they have to get done in that time. Now, of course, sometimes they'll achieve it and sometimes they won't. So that velocity chart starts to track how the team is going against those sprint items that have been put in and whether they're actually achieving the goal or not. And if they're not, then it becomes a conversation as to why not. So is it that we've under or overestimated the work? Is it that they're not being given the right tools or is someone not responding in enough time to their request? So what is it that's meaning that they can't get through that volume of work? Or is it that they're not performing? 
Um, and then, you know, then that's another conversation as to well, why, why are we not getting the outcome? Why are you not performing? So there's lots of different types of tools, particularly in software development. So I do think it's one of the most transparent jobs and lends itself most easily to remote work and knowing whether your team are doing what they should be or not. But also with our team, it is very much around not so much are they working eight hours a day, but are they getting through that volume of work? Now, some of them, or a lot of them have kids and they, you know, have highly flexible. So they're available to our clients most of the time during the day when most of our clients are working. But likewise, we have a culture of if they need to leave at 2.30 to go and do something with the kids, that's okay, as long as they at some point pick up the task that they need to get done or as long as by the end of the week those tasks are done, then I don't really care. That's <laughs> and a, my clients don't either. So, you know, at the end of the day, the clients are like, well, if we're getting through the work, then... That's right. Yeah, we don't, we don't care. They yeah. can do yoga and take their cat exactly. to the vet and do whatever as long as they're hitting those milestones. Yeah. So it sounds a little like the velocity chart sounds a little bit like a high-tech task list with deadlines. <laughs> more or less, more or less. <laughs> well, it makes sense, right? So I think any other industry could do similar, you know, what you're Absolutely. having a set amount of tasks or deadlines or outcomes per week is is all you need. And I think the importance is also getting your team to set what their outcomes are going to be. So even if we look in the non-developer context in the team, so we have, you know, our people and community manager, so she both does things to do with our own internal culture, but she also produces a lot of content where we help particularly our IT community and she runs different associations and things like that. So with her, it's more about planning out her normally 30, 60 and 90 day plans and just, you know, checking in probably once a week to see how she's tracking against those. But I have her set what are her outcomes going to be and then we agree whether that's a, you know, fair amount of work to get done in that time and again she'll check in and go you know this is where I'm at or this has taken longer so you can see if you've got those right measures in place across your business you shouldn't have a challenge of what are your staff doing and are they you know are they being responsive or not. So as somebody who studied psychology and then moved <laughs> into the tech world of training and then being a boss what have you found easy and what have you found hard in dealing with the people stuff? People are always hard. <laughs> I don't think people are ever easy. I think if you can find, I always try and find what the personal motivators are for my team. And one thing that I'm very strong on with leadership is no matter how big your organisation is or how small your organisation is, everyone should be treated as an individual. And whilst even, you know, if you're looking at, remuneration contracts and things, you can still individualise them. So a lot of big organisations go, oh, we're too big to be able to do that. You're not. You can have more or less what I call like a menu of, you know, here's our salary bands and here's a menu of things that we can build into your contract that we offer to everyone. But yours might look slightly different to the next person, even though on the whole you're earning the same amount of money. So one, I think, if you can... Right from day one, with that initial employment contract, treat everyone as an individual and then start to learn what it really is that drives them. 
And for me, it's also looking at how I can bring some of that into their work. So our team have a, a very strong values base. We want to do work that's very social impact related. So if I work with them around for even as simple as what are the organisations they would like us to be working with as a company? So, you know, they might pick Disney always comes up as, you know, they want to be able to go to their kids and go, we're doing work for Disney. Or, you know, or it might be, um, could be the United Nations Global Compact, which we've just recently joined. Those are very similar. (laughs) Very similar. But if you find that spark of what it is that drives that person, then I think you will always get the best performance out of them. For example, one of the companies we work with do pre-testing of of cancer types and so even if our team are getting frustrated at, at working with that particular customer around different things they then from a mindset perspective will shift back to well actually this company does really great work and while they're frustrating me at the moment or my job's frustrating me at the moment the thing that will get me over that is remembering why I'm here and that the work I'm doing is actually making a difference. So if you can find in each individual what it is, and everyone's different, it's not always a social impact cause either, then you will get the best performance out of your people. So that's one thing that I find really helps as a as a leader and dealing with people, if you can find the classic why, why did they do something or what do they want to be doing and how can you try and align what you do day to day with their overall personal goal, then you will get, you know, a great team member that's going to work to their best ability because they're thinking beyond what they do as a day-to-day job. The hard thing is that, you know, people go through stuff. So um, They do. <laughs> they do. And in my industry, there is a lot of challenge around anxiety and mental health. And I would say probably at a higher rate among developers, very generalised, but probably at a higher rate among developers than a lot of other industries. Um, what? Why? Because if you, the sorts of people we employ are, there's a whole testing process, but they're literally some of the the most expert minds in the world. And so you're asking them to perform, you know, these very deep analytical tasks, but also with what we do, we're asking them to sit and have a business conversation around what the business is trying to achieve and how do I build software that is going to produce that business outcome or change something quite significantly so not all developers work like that a lot of developers you know will sit behind their keyboard and code they're not having those business outcome driven conversations so you're almost asking in my team I'm asking them to be something that they're not naturally (laughs) Um, so there's not a lot of people that take up development so that they can go and talk to people behind you know sit behind a computer and code that's what they love doing and so you know not all of them have great social skills and not all of them want to be highly social so that you know when you've got someone that you're asking to do two quite different tasks it also means that they can struggle with one or the other so they might be naturally outgoing so therefore they they struggle sometimes on the the technical side Or if they're not naturally outgoing, they're struggling because you're asking them to put themselves out there and have these ongoing conversations. And then if you think to what developers do do, a lot of their time is behind a keyboard coding in 
relative isolation. You know, even if you go, I did a tour a few years ago of some of the big tech firms in in San Fran and, you know, you'll have floors of people in these fantastic buildings, but you'll have floors of people sitting side by side with headphones on and looking at a computer programming. And, you know, even though they've got bars on the rooftop and they've got Michelin star chefs that they can go and have lunch with, on the whole, the programmers are sitting there <laughs> at their desk, headphones on, not talking to anybody. So it's quite, I guess, an interesting, it's an interesting world in which, you know, they operate. And so when you're dealing with people that are often like that, they are often socially isolated. And so that can become a problem. They are very high achievers. Most developers have an innate sense to really achieve and see an outcome in their work. So again, depending on the type of work, if they're not getting that achievement, that can be quite debilitating to them on a sort of emotional and mental level as well. And there's there's lots of other <laughs> lots of other areas. And I've seen it over multiple companies that I've worked for where we have a high concentration of developers. Anxiety and depression is very high on the scale. Wow. So tell me about a time as the leader where you didn't get it right and you you fouled <laughs> up. What happened and what did you learn? Uh, look, I mentioned that I had an investor at the start and a business partner. And, you know, everyone says, be careful who you go into business with. And, and I thought that I had done that. And we spent a lot of time aligning values and what I wanted to do with the company and the type of company that I wanted. And at the start, we were quite aligned. But then over time, it became apparent that our values just weren't aligned. So they, at the end of the day, your investor wants to see the return on their investment and that wasn't happening I guess quickly enough or they also saw the potential that the business could grow a lot more quickly than what it was which is not what I wanted. Um, so I wanted to keep a, a relatively small business and grow sustainably over time not bringing contractors because I wanted to keep the value base very strong but there was more and more pressure to start to do that. So we're all friends now, but um, it was a messy, I guess, process to then go through unraveling that. And then a few, probably about a year later, my business partner and I parted ways for the same reason. So you you lost your investor and then you lost your business partner. Oh. Yes. <laughs> so, which, you know, was, uh, yeah, a lot of my doing in that yeah, I had a very fixed vision on what I wanted the company to be. And you know, there was pressure from both of them to either change the direction of the company or build it a lot more quickly and bring on more people, which was just not what I was about at the end of the day. What did you learn about yourself through that? Um, I learned that at the start, I could have done it on my own. And I'm very grateful that I had the investor at the time and my business partner. So no, no discredit to them at all. But I did learn I should have just done it on my own, <laughs> done it on my own, and I didn't have the confidence. So they gave me the confidence to start the business. And at the time, without them, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to do what I've done. 
So I'm very grateful to them because I, I probably wouldn't have done it on my own. But now looking back, I'm like, you know what? You could have and you should have. So I think having that real faith in yourself to, you know, put it on the line and just go, well, I, you know, I really did know I could do it and I, and I should have. That's an interesting <laughs> realisation, isn't it? So when it comes to building support around yourself, like CEO job, pretty lonely thing, especially if you've lost an investor and a business partner, how do you keep on the straight and narrow? How do you remain centered? Uh, so I have been fortunate in that I have a great mentor who's also my chairman. So I did set up a board very early on and I think all or most startups should do that. And so he has been a great pillar of strength to me throughout the process. He was somebody that I could go and, you know, validate ideas with. And I still do that today. So I'm very fortunate to have him. And I would say to any business owner, you do need someone like that. And you need someone who's not just going to be your cheerleader, but someone who's really going to push you and who isn't afraid to upset you um, and to tell you how it is. And so he's been great. And I even working through the process of, you know, should I, shouldn't I break up with my investor and business partner and going through that process was, was great to have him. And also surrounding myself with a great team. And everybody says that, but every individual that works for the company up until recently, I had worked with in the past or had some association with in the past. And so surrounding myself with people that I already had a, a huge amount of respect for and trusted inherently has really helped. And I, again, being very transparent with them, I've obviously had ups and downs as a leader. And so there are times when I will share that with them. And you've still got to balance that with being the leader and having the answers, but also saying, you know, there's times when, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent and, you know, and I, I need a moment and the team will rally around me for that as well. So I think having, building that rapport with the people around you. And I think today is much more accepted than certainly when I started out in management roles. And so, you know, that sort of brings in that authenticity as a leader. And I think people really do respond to that. That's great. Well, you've been on such a remarkable journey. Are there resources, like it could be a podcast, a book, anything like that, that you turn to over and over again for guidance and um, insight? Yeah, look, I'm a big fan of getting as much information from all different sources. So I read a lot in the tech industry, but I also read a lot things like the, you know, Thrive and reading that podcast and um, regularly as well. Uh, there's certain leaders in the tech space that I follow. There's a a group that was put together called SASTA, which is very... Um, SASTA? SASTA. Um, so S-A-A-S-T-R. And it's uh, an American-run uh, association, but they used to have a conference, an annual conference, which was for effectively software-as-a-service companies. But the great thing about them and the materials that they bring out uh one, very business-oriented, but then also it's stories of how those founders became the companies that they are, so their learning. So everyone from, 
big companies from Facebook through to, you know, companies we've never heard of before in the US, but really taking that human element on what did they do culturally, what worked, what didn't work, as some of those very big tech companies have been sold and the, the founders have gone on to do other things. It's quite interesting hearing the things that they've changed now to what they did back when they were working in their original startup and how they've done things differently. Um, so I think hearing those kinds of stories are one inspiring, but also make you continually reflect on, or for me, on my own business and what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong and what I shouldn't shouldn't <laughs> um, shouldn't change for the future. In terms of the culture, what is something that you tried and worked, and what is something you tried and it flopped? Interestingly, with COVID, from a flopped perspective, video calling. So, you know, everyone, we as a remote company rarely did video calls. Really? Um, so, <laughs> really. Um, and then with COVID and also our new GM coming in because she hadn't worked in a, a remote organisation before, we started doing lots more video to the point that we even started, you know, Zoom drinks on a Friday. And I was like, my God, why are we even doing this? Like, it was it was like the thing you had to do because that's what everyone was doing with COVID to keep their teams connected. And I'm like, we didn't even do social drinks on a Friday. Like, I couldn't even get people to come out of the house to have a beer on a Friday socially. So why, you know, during COVID have we gone to this video? So, and it, it lasted probably about three weeks, four weeks, and then we've stopped it. <laughs> um, so those sorts of things that I think, you know, a lot of, are quite popular at the moment with people saying, oh, you should, you know, do these more team Zoom get-togethers and things like that. It really does depend on your team. Um, and for us, that's just not who we were. The thing that works well for us, um, particularly as a remote team and culturally is we use Slack, but it could be, you know, any of those sorts of tools. Um, and we have a channel for everything. And so we have a channel for our customers. We have a, a you know, company status update channel, but we also have things like um, kids and animals or random or what made your week. And so we've got to know each other, I think, interestingly, probably a lot more than most people get to know their colleagues because people openly post, you know, pictures of, oh, my kid did this this weekend and, and here's a photo or, you know, my daughter got an A plus, you know, on her maths test and this is the great email that she sent me or, you know, here's my dog doing something crazy. So we've got to know the team quite intimately and it's not something that's forced, it's not something that people have to participate in, but you notice over time as people come into the organisation, they start to interact more and more. So I think as a team we're actually, so we've got people in Brisbane, Melbourne and Adelaide, so I think as a team we're actually exceptionally connected for a team that are not together very often and probably know each other a lot better than what most teams that see each other each day are. I love that because it's connection on on people's preferences and um, on on their terms. Yes, yeah. So it's not forced fun. Correct. And that is something we're very big on as well is nothing is ever mandatory in the company. So if you want to participate, you participate. If you don't want to participate, you don't have to. But our levels of engagement are exceptionally high across the team. And it is also... A great tool for me as a leader to see, even if it's just in their consulting channels about their customers, is that you can get a 
I guess, a, a feeling bar as to is someone doing okay or not. And so, again, we'll tend to reach out on, you know, a Slack message to say, hey, I've noticed you've been a bit quiet or, you know, you don't interact as much as you normally do. Are you okay? What's going on with you? So those sorts of things, I think, as a leader, if you're in tune with it, can be great barometers for you as to how your team's really doing. And you can really notice that too. We use Slack as well. And if someone hasn't been around on Slack for a day, it's like, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) We're a remote team too. And it's like, that's our way of keeping each other up to date about what's happening. So yeah, it's very easy to pick up on that. Wonderful. So last question, what is the best piece of advice someone's given you? Interestingly, it's my mentor that I said, who's also my my chairman. We often talk about women in leadership and and my style of, of leadership, um, which is a bit different um, because I am so radically transparent, I have been told. But the one thing he said to me when we're dealing, like I'm obviously dealing with other founders and CEOs of both large organisations and government, et cetera, and I'm often still the only female in the room. And the one thing he's always said to me is just continue to be you. And that's really stuck with me. So there's been times when, particularly when I was younger and I was first getting into management, where I thought I had to act a certain way or I shouldn't be as transparent or I shouldn't share my feelings unnecessarily and certain behaviours. But he's actually, you know, said to me a number of times, it's refreshing to see a female leader still being very much who they are and, you know, I guess not trying to cover things up or not trying to, I guess, mirror the other people in the room. So that's something that's really stuck with me. And, yeah, there are times when I'm like, oh, I should be, you know, maybe I should be a certain way or I should change some of my behaviours and then I continue to go back to that conversation and go, you know what, I'm doing okay. <laughs> I'll just stay <laughs> baby. That's good. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like you've had a, quite a remarkable journey from the forays of psychology through to running your own, well, two separate companies <laughs> in a virtual environment in a very specialized field. Congratulations on everything that you've accomplished and for pioneering such a wonderful business and being a light for other young female leaders in particular, and for leaders more broadly, for how you lead a company that's very specific and you cater to the needs and uh, desires of your team. I think that's a wonderful leadership lesson for all of us. Faith, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It was great to chat with you. Thanks, Zoe. I really enjoyed it. What an amazing story. I love Faith's insights and the courage and gumption that she had to start a really difficult business. You know, you have a lot of promises to make to young software developers to come on board and convince them that you're going to have the money to pay them. I think that that first challenge is quite scary. And you really need to back yourself. And I love that that was one of Faith's really important lessons she learned along the way about how to deal with people's stuff and how to go about being a leader. I think that was awesome. I guess the other thing I took away from Faith's story is really building a company and a team based on, first of all, your values and what's important to you, and matching that with what's important to your staff and building a culture that is based on 
the values and behavior preferences and work preferences of that particular team. You don't need to conform to what everybody else is doing. You need to find the thing that the people that you work with value too. And so they've created a very unique culture with its own unique habits and systems that works for them and builds engagement. So there is no single recipe for externals, but the process of finding what matters most to people is what we can take away from this amazing interview. And if you have somebody else that you'd like to recommend to interview on the podcast, we'd love to hear about them. Send us an email. You can go to zoe at intercompass.com.au and send me an email there. Or you can click on the link in the show notes that will take you to the Facebook page. You can send us a message and introduce us to somebody you think would be well worthy of being on the podcast. In the meantime, live well, lead well. <laughs>